0: You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. In this episode, I interview Lords of the Fly author, Monty Burke, and we talk about everything from how Monty got his start in writing uh, to the environmental threats to tarpon fisheries like Homosassa, how fly fishing is now cool, and how the next generation of fly anglers Um, has a conservation ethos, and even taking a vacation from your phone while fishing in the Everglades. Hope you enjoy. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Emerger Strategies, a sustainable business consultancy whose mission is to solve the climate crisis by helping your business go carbon neutral and zero waste. To learn more, visit EmergerStrategies.com. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is also brought to you with support from fish gods who recently launched a Kickstarter campaign. So how often have you encountered trash along a stream while fishing? A discarded soda can or a plastic bottle? Maybe you wanted to pick up the trash But had nowhere to put it or you simply didn't want to worry about lugging pieces of garbage around while trying to wet a line. After a college research trip with Trout Unlimited, a pair of young anglers decided to make a difference in the watershed pollution crisis. Fish Gods was born from both passion and problem. The team designed a reusable bag to collect trash from our waterways, forests, and beaches that we all love to use for fishing and all other forms of recreation the Clean Earth Bag was born. The Clean Earth Bag eliminates the single-use plastic alternatives. The bag is designed to endure the elements and easily connect to any anchor point, making, making it convenient to attach to your belt, pack, or waders. It is collapsible and lightweight, making it easy to pack away in almost any situation. Fish Gods just launched a Kickstarter campaign to help fund the Clean Earth Bag project. They're extremely close to reaching their goal, but need your support to help make their idea a reality. If their goal is reached, Fish Gods will have enough capital to produce the clean earth bag using recycled materials and practice sustainable manufacturing methods, as well as low impact shipping. To learn more about the mission or donate to the Kickstarter campaign, visit fishgods.co. Monty, how did, how did you wind up getting, uh, becoming a writer and, and
1: leading up to the release of your, your latest book, Lords of the Fly? Um, it, it, it was a, a sort of, uh, long and torturous journey. I actually, uh, I graduated from college and I'm the oldest of three boys. And I felt like the sort of responsible thing for me to do would be to, uh, apply to business school and, uh, you know, get into the corporate world and all that sort of stuff. Um, at the same time, I was, you know, in the midst of just falling madly in love with with fly fishing. And uh, at the time, I was living in Washington, D.C., and I fished the the spring, great spring creeks in Virginia, and I became a total LaTorte spring run hound. I mean, I read about all the history there, Marinero and Charlie Fox, all these guys, and I was getting really into it. And um, I, around the time that I was applying for business school, I actually... Um, uh, found sort of one of the old guard, this guy named Ed Shank, who just died last year, who was still around. And I, you know, I was like, yeah, you know, I'm going to just call him up and see if he's willing to do a story. I'd never written a story before. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and he said, yes. So I went and spent the day with, with old Eddie Shank, who's, who was about four foot four and just this little <laughs> awesome, charming, you know, gremlin of a dude and showed me all these really cool, uh, things he did on the tour to try to, you know fool those huge but very wary brown trout and um i wrote that story and then i sent it to a bunch of magazines and uh it was this literally happened within a week I, I i swear so i got into business school um um and then literally five to six days later i got a letter from uh, the magazine sporting classics i still have a letter actually it's um uh the editor there charles uh, chuck wexler who's still that who's still there uh said you know i, I liked your story um we're gonna, we'd like to pay you $200, this was like, I'd written like a 3,000 word story. And I was like, hell yeah. So <laughs> I made the imprudent, uh, financially speaking anyway, uh, decision to, uh, to not go to business school and to, and to try to become a writer. And, uh, you know, just from that point on, I just sort of dove in and I got, my first job was, a, I was basically a secretary at Sports of Field Magazine, which is what got me to New York. Um, uh, they had an opening for someone to kind of answer phones a little bit. but you know on the side, I did I wrote and edited and learned from all these really cool people who had been there. Sports the field at the time was a hunting and fishing magazine. now it's a big game magazine. But that was sort of my introduction to the to writing. and then I went and worked for Forbes for fifteen years, which was a great uh, education and you know fact checking and reporting especially um, and kind of concurrent to that forbes thing I did. Um, I did a, my first, uh, I edited a book first on Atlantic Salmon, and then I wrote um, a book about the chase for the world record largemouth bass, um, which was something that was interesting to me because I grew up down south and, you know, had always heard the stories about George Perry's iconic fish. Uh, and then I detoured away from fishing um, and wrote about uh, football coaches, which is uh, uh, my uh, agent and various editors were very happy about it. It's a slightly bigger audience. Uh, I say that tongue in cheek, it's a lot bigger audience. but. but um, okay. Uh, I wrote a, a book called Fourth and Goal about uh, the former CEO of TD Ameritrade who stepped away at the age of 59 to try to go fulfill his lifelong dream of becoming a college football coach. And uh, I'll give away the ending. He actually gets a job at a college football program as head coach, but it was a, it, this book's kind of about his journey to that spot. Wow. Uh, and then my next book after that was about uh, Nick Saban, who is the uh, football coach at University of Alabama.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, who is he?
1: <laughs> um, so that was super fun. I got a lot of attention. I'll never forget being in. A, Nick didn't like it all that much, and I'll never forget being in a um, uh, getting a sandwich with my brother. And there was a big screen TV right above my head, and it was ESPN, and it was the ESPN folks talking about how much Nick Saban did not like the fact that someone had written his uh, his biography. And I literally kind of took my hat down a little bit. But that was a great experience. Um, <laughs> and then uh, you know, and then. You know, I, I still just obviously never stopped loving fly fishing. In fact, I probably love it more now that I have three kids and can do it a little bit less. But um, right. You know, this this idea. Uh, I'd been uh, I did a magazine story on on Steve Huff, the great guy down in uh, he's down in the Everglades, but he was in the Keys before. Um, and he uh, and I became friends after I did that story, and I went down and fished with him subsequent years. This was the first year I missed, in, I think a decade fishing with him. But he would always mention. This word, which which of this town, which always sounded like a kind of enchanted, poetic word to me, which was homosassa and I had you know I knew I knew that there's something had gone on in the late '70s and early '80s in home but I wasn't really all up on it. And um, you know, he told me about this magical time uh, there in the late '70s and early '80s when, you know, I think you could argue that all of the the, the greatest fly fishing fly fishermen at the time, along with the greatest guides, were all there at the same time for about five years or so, all in pursuit of the same goal, which was the breaking the world record on the fly for tarpon. Um, And I thought that was just so interesting. This was maybe this kind of apex moment in fly fishing. when You had people like Stu Apt and Lefty was there for a little while, Billy Pate, Ted Williams, Uh, Flip pallet came in and out Chico Fernandez came in and out Steve Huff was there Tom Evans was there I mean all these sort of names that I You know had read about knew about from the time I was 13 years old Um, uh, And so that was intriguing and then a couple years after that story I did with Steve I did a story on Andy mill and uh, and uh, Went down and got another good lesson in tarpon lore or whatever. I think it was early 2018 Andy, of course, knows, you know, everything in Tarpon history. He called me and he said, you know, you got to tell this story about Homo Assassin. And I was like, okay. He's like, no, no, you have to tell the story on Homo Assassin. and I'm going to give you this phone number. Call this guy. And so I called the phone number, and it was uh, Tom Evans, who is, uh, who kind of is the central, he's the thread, at least, that goes throughout the whole book. I lead with Tom Evans. He appears in many chapters, uh, and then I end with Tom Evans as well. And he's... He was one of the first kind of pioneers there at Homosassa during its glory days. And Homosassa fell off uh, almost completely. The fishery almost died. But he's 83 years old and he still goes down every year to try to break the world record. So I thought this was an interesting guy. And uh, when I went up and visited him in Vermont and listened to some of his stories. And I said, you know, what, this is, this is a story that I have to tell. This is a story about this, like I said before, an apex moment in fly fishing. But it was also interesting to me to kind of figure out what led up to that moment and then what has happened since that moment. Um, And, you know, because it wasn't a a book about college football coaches or a college football coach, my agent and various editors were, um, you know, a little hesitant at first, uh, but, uh, you know, about the idea, but um, thankfully they all got behind it. And um, that is how Lords of the Fly, that's the long answer. To your short question about how lords of the fly uh came about
0: No, that that's awesome um so a couple couple of questions um you said that you you uh grew up in the south i'm just out of curiosity where where whereabouts
1: so i was actually born my dad was as my mother would say my dad was a yankee and my mother was from was from alabama so i was actually born in new hampshire lived in vermont for until i was about seven and then we moved down south and i grew up in uh, Birmingham, Alabama for a while, and also in a rural town in North Carolina. And it was in that town, North Carolina, when I got really in, we had a little pond in the backyard that was always half covered with algae, but, you know, it was full of bass. And so, you know, I used to go down there with my grandfather's old Orvis cane rods and a big, you know, popper and just get after it and just had a blast. And that's kind of where I started fly fishing and really, really, really got into it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that 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 that's cool. Um yeah, I uh I I was born and raised in Savannah, Georgia, and um I did not get into to fly fishing. I, I, I moved out west after college and that's when I discovered it. But um so a little bit later in life, so I was in my early twenties, but just you know, you you kind of get the bug and you just I don't know, it, it has yet to go away. And to your point, I have a of a, a, a toddler as well. And so I don't get to uh, go out as yeah. as much as I used to, but it just makes it even that much more fun when,
1: when yep. you're able to get Absolutely. out there. I don't think it ever, the book probably never goes away. It evolves maybe a little bit, but it never goes away. And if you're, you know, I think there are a couple different types of anglers, but I'm one of those ones who just, you know, I really love the lore as well. I mean, I love the, uh, I've always loved the lore. I mean, going back to La LaTorte really, but, uh, but you know, of how things happened, how things transpired, how, you know, uh, innovations in gear happened, how different fisheries were discovered and, 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 uh, you know, it's just, that has always been really, I mean, I'm a total disciple of Tom Thomas McGuane and, you know, all those just wonderful. I just love it when people treat, uh, writing about fishing in the same way that they treat writing novels. And I think McGuane is probably the, the apex of that. You know, he's, he, he puts as much care and thought and, and, and sort of beauty into his fishing writing as he does, uh, into his novels. And I've just always really loved that.
0: Yeah, that's, um, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, so, so here, here's another interesting, um, factoid that, that, that I'll throw out, out at you, um, is cause I do want to talk about Lords of the Fly, but also it's just recently released and I don't want to, just totally, you know, try and, you know, you need, people need to buy the book and read it. So with all that being said, we we, we can kind of talk a little bit here and there about it. But, um, but one of the things, going back to some of your earlier writing, um, I, I mentioned this to you pri- prior to the interview, but um, I became aware of, of you as a, as a writer, because I was doing research before I launched my company, Emerger Strategies. Um, and you had written an article called the The greenest companies in fly fishing. And um, at the time, even um, there wasn't, it, like I couldn't, I was trying to research the industry and I couldn't find any information on it. Yeah. Um, it was like, I was like, I, I couldn't find things on, a lot you know i mean patagonia they're they're kind of the 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 poster child for it but as as a company and i had read let my people go surfing um but i didn't have a lot of of information in terms of doing research so anyway um how just out of curiosity was that just uh hey i needed uh uh write it I wanted to write an article about fly fishing and this seemed like a good topic or was there any any background to that just from Yeah, opinion. I mean
1: so so you know g- having spent a couple of years at Sports A Field, um and and which was, you know, like it was kind of like Field and Stream back then. That, like I said before, it's it's now it, it's just a big game hunting magazine. But it was like Sports A Field. I started to notice this uh this kind of divide, uh, and this is going back like, you know, even then, I mean, this was in the 90s, 90s, yeah, like the mid 90s, this sort of divide among, or between quote unquote sportsmen and quote unquote uh, environmentalists. And, you know, the sportsmen would call environmentalists greenies and the environmentalists would be like, well, you've gun toting, you know, blah, blah, blahs or whatever. So there seemed to be this kind of, this yawing divide, which, which bothered the crap out of me because I felt like we were all on the same side and we were kind of eating each other up. Um, a little bit. And so that, uh, I sort of noticed that emerging, I guess, back then. And then it, it, to me, it's gotten a lot worse. I mean, with our politicized kind of environment now, it's gotten a lot worse to a certain degree, but I, you know, I always felt like we were on the same side. And, um, uh, so it was interesting to me to look into, I mean, I've, I, I've uh, had the, the real, the fortune actually for, for when working at Forbes, I did a, a story. I've done two stories on Yvonne Schonard, So spent some serious time with him and, uh, salmon camp in Labrador, and then I actually did a story on the then president of Orvis, uh, Perk Perkins. And during those those times I spent with them, I realized how much the those two companies in particular um, were involved in giving back and up, trying to preserve preserve what you know preserve sort of the cathedrals in which we we go pray. I'll put it that way. And I thought that was just so cool. And I thought that people didn't. I mean, obviously, I think people know it now. But I felt like then, you know, it wasn't like to your point, it wasn't necessarily that evident, or it wasn't, you know, as publicized as it as it should have been. And I, I feel like with more publicity, of that then people, more people would kind of get on that and realize how much how much we do need to work to uh, save these resources which we love so much. I mean, it, it's really interesting to me to talk to talk to uh, one of my fundamental. You know, I often question whether fishing and hunting to, to a certain degree are, you know, are sustainable acts in, in, in and of themselves. I mean, catch and release fishing, as you know, is not uh, 100% uh, survivable for the fish uh, no. every time. But sort of my excuse, I guess, or, or the thinking I've done about this is that I feel like anglers, um, especially when they're aligned with the group, whether it's they're you know buying stuff from Patagonia or whether it's uh, being members of the Atlantic Salmon Federation or trying to limit it, I, I feel like we do more for or hopefully do more for these resources than than just the average folks who don't really fish or anything like that. So, I mean, I, I, it's, it's kind of a weird thing. I don't think it's that self-evident to people who don't fish. They're like, oh, you care about all these things? Like, why are you going out and catching them and playing with them and stuff like that? But I think, you know, because of the attention that we pay, because that we, because we, you know, pay attention to political things, because we donate a lot of money, that sort of thing. I, I do think this sort of, uh, there's a, there's a relationship there that works out. Um, And so to me, that's always been a fascinating thing. Not only sort of just looking at it from the companies that are involved in it, but also just personally, you know, I often question, you know, what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. And um, that uh, for right now could, could all change, I guess. But for right now, I feel like there's a net positive as long as I stay very involved in, in trying to, you know, be a conservationist, be environmentalist, um, take care of these places that mean so much to me and to a lot of others. Well,
0: yeah. And, and, and I think that's an excellent point. And, and I think as, as anglers um, and, and hunters for that matter, you know, feel the same way and that, you know, this is the resource that, the, the way that I try and um, at least personally, you know, when, when I am, hooked up with a fish and it, it, it could be any fish. It could, you know, largemouth bass, a trout, a tarpon, anything. And in that moment, everything slows down and nothing else matters. And for me personally, those are the types of moments where I feel most alive. And so when that's something that I, that I want to protect. And so I think that the, the, the sentiment's the same and I, and I also think that it's important for um, you know for if if we if nobody fished or hunted then uh, we these animals and these fish wouldn't have a voice because people would be complacent and things would happen in the background to the environment that are impacting the the animals and the fish that, that we love and want to protect. So now they have a voice behind them versus complacency and just say, Oh, I don't know, you know, yeah, put a mine there or do this or do that. I, I
1: you know um, I remember I did a story for Forbes once about, cause there were these PETA protests uh, about, uh, catch and release fishing which which is an ethical thing that we all should think about i think but i remember writing the story and, and thinking to myself you know without those ang- they were throwing rocks or something like that at some anglers uh, tr- trout fishing and i was like you know without those anglers out there in the stream there probably wouldn't be in there tr- trout it wouldn't be any trout in there for you guys to be- get your you know get your druthers up
0: <laughs> right, uh, right
1: and i also you know i often think about i don't know if this is a this might be a uh uh it, it's a, I can't find the original source on this, but Aldo Leopold supposedly uttered once, he said, we protect what we love. And I've always, you know, we, we, we anglers, we and hunters as well. Like we love, we love doing what we do. So we naturally want to protect it. And we are, like you just said, I and mean, we we are the voice for, I mean, without the Atlantic Salmon Federation, I don't think there'd be any, there'd be very few Atlantic salmon left uh, in the world. Uh, you know, try to limit it just the wetlands restoration and the you know, headwater uh, protections they put, they do alone are just amazing, you know, Ducks Unlimited too. I mean, they do incredible work with preserving wetlands. So, you know, I do think that there's, and again, this could change at some point in my thinking on this, but that's, that's kind of how I get through the, the moral part of this whole deal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm, I'm, I'm the same way. Um, I mean, but I, 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 hope that it doesn't change. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope I ever don't get to a point where I'd say, you know, I don't, I don't think I am going to fish today. But no, uh, <laughs> I've seen, I just I just talked to a guy who's been fishing. He's older than I am. He's in his 70s or early 80s. And he fishes pointless hooks. So, you know, I, people do. It's kind of and he was the most rabid. I mean, he's Atlantic salmon fisherman, and fisherman. You know, I think people. it's kind of interesting to see how some people do evolve. I, I don't think I'll ever get to that point.
0: Yeah, <laughs> well, I've I, I've heard of that though too. You know, or it's like yeah, you. you it, well, it, then it also comes down to I think as maybe you get older, where you're also kind of um, passing that information and knowledge down to the to the next generation. Because I mean, th- there's there's definitely a progression, right? It's like yeah, oh, I've got to like first for me, it was like just trying to figure out a little bit of entomology and catching some trout. And that process was super exciting and fun, like you know, kind of figuring that out. And then it became like a—I uh, was releasing all the trout, but you know, except for the occasional campfire trout. But um, then it was like a numbers game. I was like, "Well, how many? How many can I get?" And then it's like, "Well, now that I've sort of refined my skills, I want to catch the big wily brown." Yeah, you know. And then now it's like I'm just happy to have the time to get out there and 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 and, and cast a little bit
1: i mean it, you know as they say fly fishing takes place takes place in very beautiful places that is uh, i think there's an exception made there for some carp fishermen i know <laughs> but but you know there there is uh t- to me the difficulty i mean the difficulty's is the point right i mean it's the uh it, fly fishing is more difficult you know when i go out and fish in the surf here there's all these guys with their with their hardware and, that, and they're catching more fish than I am. Like, you know, I purposely made it a little more difficult because it's more, it's more fun to me. You know, people, they're like, Oh, what are you, what are you doing with that thing? You could just chuck out a tin and catch a false albacore. But to me, it's just more fun to like, you know, I don't know. The difficulty is the point. McGuane has a great, a great line about that. He, he likens the, using the fly rod to the net and tennis, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's what makes the game a game.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, that's, that's great. Um, well, we were kind of, um, talking a well, I'll, I'll touch on this. Cause so full disclosure, um, I have not finished Lords of the Fly. I, am I'm, I'm in process. So that, another reason that I won't be asking too many questions, cause okay. I don't, I, I also don't want to know Right. This, some of it, but you did mention, um, that the fishery and homo sasa declined Yep is,
1: is is there a reason for that like i mean i i, I, I there, is, there is yep so first of all you got to get to the, the last paragraph my favorite bit of the whole book so you gotta you gotta promise me you get there even if you have to skip ahead just get there I,
0: the, the, this don't, is don't, I, don't
1: skip ahead because you need you need the context before you get there but um so so Homosassa was really interesting to me um, because because it was this apex moment in uh in fly fishing. I mean it basically was uh you know El Capitan the the equivalent of El Cap in the climbing world or the equivalent of Yankee Stadium in baseball. I mean it was the apex of the whole deal. For some reason this subset of tarpon that were 20 to 50% bigger than any other tarpon you know in North America came to this one spot every May. Um and you know, it was just this amazing moment uh, starting in the late 70s and then literally at some point in the mid to late 80s, it just fell off a cliff. And, you know, part of that had to do with with the publicity. I mean, there was one thing that was really interesting about researching this era is, you know, how how much publicity it was received. I mean, the New York Times did a big feature story about, it, about this record chase, about all these people being there. The Toronto Globe and Mail did a big piece. Sports Illustrated set down a writer, and then he did like a seven-page piece on all on all this stuff. ABC did a uh, a, a special that they aired on Sunday afternoon. Uh, 3M did it, which owned Scientific Anglers at the time, did a, a movie about it, a one-hour movie about it. So it had, it had a lot of publicity, and and it, and that led, I think, a little bit to the problems there. I mean, you all of a sudden you went from having like seven boats on the water to having like a hundred and tarpon. Wow. They don't love, I mean, a lot of people running electronic motors too, they don't love all that. Of course, they do tolerate it. If you go to the Keys, there are tons of boats there and they're still going by. So, you know, so to me, I was like, okay, that can't be the full answer. Let's dive in a little bit more into this. So I researched, um, I did a lot of research actually on this one chapter because it was really fascinating to me. So... The Homosassa is on is on what uh, is known as the springs coast of Florida. There are four huge spring-fed rivers that flow into Homosassa Bay along with, you know, hundreds of other little mini springs that also go in there. And at some point, you know, it was a billion gallons of fresh water a day going into the bay. And so that is like totally necessary to have the mangroves there, which is the rearing habitat uh, for tarpon. Um, it's also necessary because, uh, just from an ecological sense, because the blue crabs, which were, uh, you know, mm. need the fresh water for nutrients. And so, uh, I looked into sort of what, so what, you know, I, I called up a couple people and they said, you know, the, it's, the freshwater flow is reduced by 50% or so since the seventies. Oh. And that all has to do with, uh, development there and just the exploitation of the the aquifer there. So, I mean, in sometimes starting in the late 70s, there were two master plan communities, you know, 7,000 combined 7,000 homes and uh, six golf courses, or something like that, which just resulted in an explosion. And the two counties that are right there in Homosassa, Citrus County and Hernando County, were two of the fastest growing counties in the country from like the late 70s until. 2005 or something like that. I mean, they literally went from like 16,000 people to 165,000 people. And, um, and you know, all those people need places. They were mainly retirees. They needed places to live. They wanted golf course to to entertain themselves. And, um, you know, basically what happened is a big straw went down into that aquifer and just started sucking up all that fresh water. So that with the fresh water flow decreased, um, you know, the, the mangroves didn't do very well, but sort of more importantly, just to this, just to the, the big fish coming in, the the crabs went away. Um, Steve Huff used to, would tell me that, you know, when, back in the seventies when he was there, there, there were so many crabs, it was like almost absurd how many blue crabs that were floating around. And then the tarpon would be busting on them every morning and they would come and try to, they would clack on Steve's push pole, his graphite pole, and they would be all over the trim tabs. And every time they caught a tarpon, it would disgorge, crabs from both ends so there were just crabs you know everywhere and when you go down there now I've been down there uh many times in the last couple of years I've not seen one crab it used to be 55 I think commercial crabbers down there I think there are two now um wow. and so that lack of fresh water you know and then of course the I mean the equation is fairly simple right it's like fewer crabs means fewer tarpon um less fresh water equals fewer crabs which equals fewer tarpon um and so I think those fish you know the the consensus really is that those fish Without that impressive buffet kind of lined up for them every May, they just said, "Screw it, we're out of here. We'll go somewhere else." And of course, you know that has repercussions, not just for tarpon fishing. I mean, the the the, the diminu, you know, the, the minimizing of the aquifer, the sucking up of all that water has huge consequences for not just tarpon but also people. Um, and you know, it's something that it's something that that not nobody in a position of power in Florida seems to give a crap about. I mean, there was a point when Jeb Bush, when he was governor, he he did do some sort of Springs Restoration Act, but it was never actually enacted because Rick Scott, uh, who's now the senator there, was the governor for a while, just abolished it. Um, you know, Florida is just a, Florida's kind of a microcosm for the country and maybe the world. They don't, they, you know, economic progress is above you know, held above any other type of progress. And, you know, of course, they've got the Everglades problems and the Lake Okeechobee water going to each, either side of the coast and polluting, you know, polluted horrible water going into the estuaries on the east side um, of Florida. And so, you know, it's it was really fascinating to dive in. It was also really fascinating to be, I was spun quite a bit or tried to be spun by the, uh, some of the state folks, they're like, oh, no, it's just because there's been a drought. And, you know, I looked at actually their data on their website and it showed that there hasn't been a drought. I mean, it was just really, it was really incredible. It was really incredible. So I think I said in there, I said something like, I wrote in the book something like, you know, there are facts involved here and let's let them get in the way. And, and then just kind of detailed how, you know, how this sort of misinformation campaign uh, has been waged. And, you know, it's just a... It, what's sad to me is that it's like you know like you think about global warming and it, it's almost overwhelming right it's such a huge problem like how do i as an individual kind of process this and kind of how can i do anything about it but then you look at this like water problem just in homo for instance and you know it's a political problem and it's also a solvable problem so it's actually something you can kind of wrap your head around and of course all of these little problems like this lead to this bigger global you know climate change you know, global warming problem but and to me, that's the most frustrating thing about it is that we could actually solve this problem. We could actually have we could get that we could not drink up all of that water in the aquifer um, if we if we wanted to. But there is no right now no political will uh, at all to do that. that. That's that's crazy. And and you know and you and you mentioned you know talking about
0: climate change too and what that means for a lot of these coastal towns that are going to start to ha- it's going to happen soon um they is they're gonna start getting salt water intrusion into those aquifers because of sea level rise and i'll i'll give you an a, a recent example uh last week in charleston that's where i'm based now um you know we're, we're we had last year we had 80 a record 89 days where we flooded where 50 years ago charleston flooded five days a year And so, yeah, right. And, and, but, but what's even crazier now is we're getting sunny day flooding. So no rain, the, it's just a, 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 you know, near full moons and new moons, bigger tides, but there's areas of town that are flooding. And then if it does rain, it doesn't take a whole lot of rain to sort of exacerbate that. Um, And so, you know, these are, Climate change used to be this thing that it was like, or at least to me anyway, that it just seemed like, hey, we should address it now because, you know, this is going to be a problem. It's like, well, no, it's here now. Right. It's happening right now as we as as we speak, it's happening.
1: And, And we're doing very, I mean, there are a lot of great groups trying to do things, but we're just as a species not doing a whole lot about this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and the um the the other thing that that you mentioned too, like it's like this home assassin and it gets developed and you know overdeveloped and they're not taken into consideration, um you know environmental impacts of that, but you know and like in sustainability sort of in in this world you know we we call that the the tragedy of the commons right where it's like here's a resource you you come in and you basically extract, extract, extract until there's not much left. And then guess what? The development's gone. Um, so I don't know if that helps simplify this for for anyone that that's listening, but you know, resources are finite and you can't exponentially grow, um, without there being a repercussion for that. Um, so anyway, just to to throw that out there, I guess, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, but yeah so is there in in your research and and I have I have no idea um but in, in your research was there anything related to um climate change impact on tarpon at all
1: uh I mean I think that there that that yes I mean I, I part of this is also I mean like like you mentioned the salinity getting into the aquifer it's already starting um so uh But that has something to do with it. I think, you know, mangroves uh, being overwhelmed by salt, not having enough fresh water. Mangroves are a big defense mechanism against, uh, you know, uh, climate change. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I, I I don't, no one's, again, I think it's like, that's the big thing that kind of overhangs all of this. I think what groups like the Bonefish Tarpon Trust and, caps for clean water are sort of more granular focused. They're sort of focusing on okay, what can we can we get more water, more fresh water into the Everglades? Can we uh, not uh, send polluted water, you know, uh, to the you know from Okeechobee to the east and west coast of Florida? Can we just you know put in some regulations about you know who can access the aquifer and how much, I mean, the uh, average golf course in Florida uses something like 370,000 gallons of fresh water a day, every day. Whoa. And in just those two counties in, in Hernando and Citrus County, the 35 golf courses now. So, I mean, there's just gotta be a better way to do that. So, I, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot, All obviously all of this ties into climate change, but uh, the groups that, that I know of anyway, are all focused on kind of smaller, more granular, granular things, I think, which will, you know, if they can, get them done will lead to some help on the on the bigger picture yeah yeah um that's pretty wild
0: 370,000
1: gallons of water not only that uh, not too long ago nine of those courses in Hernando County were busted for using more than that they, that's their allotment you know and they were using more than that so you know it's just a uh, it, It'll drive you crazy if you get. <laughs> 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 I don't
0: know. I'm sitting here like my my mind is blown. Yet I'm I'm also like I don't know. I'm like taken aback by that number. That's 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 crazy. Um, all right. So is there? Um, so we know that, and and talking about, uh, well, I, I, or maybe this even is kind of what I'm hearing. Is as you're talking about this is sort of the 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 interconnectedness of it all, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, hey, you know, in theory, it's like, hey, well, this this could, you know, this is good for the economy. Well, we can just using Homosassa as as like a micro example. It's like, hey, here's a town. It's got great natural resources, and that in and of itself is going to, you know, attract tourists and um that that's good for the economy people want to move here that's good for the economy um but on the flip side of that is what you're seeing is uh you know a reduction in the water aquifer crabs go away tarpon go away so it seems that i think i don't know i guess maybe a takeaway that i think um more people understood is the interconnectedness of everything that we do with nature the, 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 there's no away. you know it's not like you just the stuff goes away and
1: yeah. there's not some magical you know you, you it's magical thinking to think that you can just keep putting straws into this aquifer and keep taking water out and think that everything's going to be okay it's just not and so you know in in the book i sort of use what happened in almost as kind of a microcosm for you know what you know again like i said like not only the state of florida but also the us and really the world too it's sort of how we just operate and and you know it, it, it's a uh, you know if you talk to some of the old timers who were there it's it's like you can actually see the pain in their eyes when they when they talk about it. i mean just literally like you know this sort of eden they had um, there for for you know a number of years and there was a fall from grace uh you know put it in biblical terms and there hasn't been a redemption, and it doesn't look like there's going to be one. I mean, that's the whole you know, you know. If you, I was a religion major in college, so I'm, I'm steeped in theology. But the whole promise of the of, of many religions, but also Christianity, is that there is a redemption. And it, you know, I just it, there hasn't been one for Al It's been not good since the late '80s. Now that hasn't stopped some crazy dudes from going back because you, you know, you don't see the. You, you, there were, by a number of people told me in the late 70s, early 80s, there were 10,000 fish there sometimes, tarping, slurping around, you know, burbling, bubbling, happy. Uh, and now you go back in the, the years I've been there, you know, I go back and we, we see like 12 maybe on a good day. I mean, a good day is considered 12 and you maybe get a follow or you maybe get one to bite Um, and you know, they have days that are slightly better than that too, but it's, and that's sort of like a little false spring. I mean, people get all pumped up. Oh, it's going to go back to the way it was, but it just isn't. And in fact, this may, when you would think that, you know, with less boat traffic, with the COVID stuff like that, you would think that it would have been a banner year. It was one of the worst years. I, there's one, one of these record hunters that I wrote about, went there for the entire month of May and didn't get a bite. Whoa. Uh, Days and days and days, just looking out, you know, waiting for them to come, looking out over an empty sea just staring out. And so then that's, you know, that's the norm now. That's not the you know, that that's not an outlier. So it's uh yeah. That, so it's pretty crazy. Yeah, that is that's pretty grim.
0: Um is <laughs> uh well you 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 also mentioned earlier um about the uh what was it the, uh, about the world record largemouth bass uh yep. so belly. Salbelly. Yep. Belly. So yeah um and now you've got a book on world record harpin. is there any commonalities between like personalities that go after these types of records
1: or yeah you know? i mean i you know i i, I someone asked me the other day and i i had never really put this together but i looked at all of the with the exception of maybe the atlantic salmon book although you could say that's also contained so as well but all of the books I've written and most of the feature stories I've written have been about people who are obsessed. And, uh, know, I guess you could say I'm obsessed with obsessive people. I, I, I find these things, you know, even if they're weird, I mean, to many people, I live in Brooklyn. If I went around and said that there are some people in this world who are obsessed with catching a world record tarpon or obsessed with catching a largemouth bass, they would look at me cross-eyed, you know, they'd be like, what are you talking about? (laughs) But I think, you know, and so a lot of these obsessions seem kind of silly and they seem kind of naive as you get older. It's, uh, you know whether it's climbing Everest or collecting rare books or, or you know fishing for the world record tarpon but i find them so interesting because i find I, I i think in the collective if you put all these things together this is what makes the world go around i mean this is what gets people out of bed every day this is what you know animates people i mean obviously you can take it too far a lot of characters in my book do take it too far and it doesn't end up very well for uh, for them but um you know it to me this is what this is the animating feature of being human to a certain degree so you know, the bass folks, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, the size of the wallets is a little bit different, um, because, you know, you don't need a guide. you don't need to pay a guide $800 a day to go bass fishing. Um, they certainly they do have, there's a lot of commonalities. There's like a, you know, sort of neglecting of everything else, um, to, to pursue this, you know, in the pursuit really. And, but there's also a lot of So there's some bad things that happen. Like some people just take it like anything. They take it too far and they, destroy their lives. I mean, there's, there are guys, I'm not going to give it away too much, but there are guys in the uh, Tarpon book who die actually, uh, partly because of their obsession. Um, you know, marriages and fall fail and all that sort of stuff. But there's a lot of good that can come from it too. I mean, there's a lot of like, you know, you, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn how to, you know, the limits, you know, you push yourself. There's a lot of really cool things too. So <clears throat> yeah, I mean the bass, <laughs> the bass dudes, um, were totally fascinating. This 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 is this was just a different group. I mean, it was just a... It was sort of... Um, you know, to me, there was... One thing that was really cool in this book was this sort of... You know, we talk about interconnectedness is how connected everything was in the saltwater fishing scene and how you could kind of see how it evolved a little bit. So you went from, like, you know, the early people trying to catch bonefish on the flats in, in the Florida Keys, and then they started to try to catch tarpon with their bamboo rods and their salmon reels and just got wrecked. And then you came to like uh, Chico Fernandez and Flip Pallet who were, you know, at college at the same time and who became obsessed with fishing for tarpon. And in that pursuit of, in in that obsession really, and in that pursuit, they really, they started to refine the gear and, and, and make it actually so that you could actually hook one of these things and play it and land it. And then, and then the sort of, you know, if you want to put it in cinematic terms, the camera kind of pans down to Key West where you have, the artists come in, uh, once it's made sort of, uh, you know, once, once it was proved that it was doable, the artists came in and sort of, you know, like uh, Tom McGuane and Jim Harrison and Russell Chatham and Richard Brodigan. And they, you know, saw this really as an art form. I mean, they would go out and and try to catch tarpon and it became the sort of this, you know, uh, trying to explain the ineffable, ineffable almost, um, uh, and they even made a movie about it called Tarpon, which was cool. And then, yeah. so, uh, I, I have a copy of that. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great movie. And then so I I liken it to this. Uh, so then then what happens? Then the camera goes up to Home Assassin. And I, I liken it kind of like when I first moved to New York, I lived in this neighborhood called Soho, which was a former industrial neighborhood, very cheap rent uh when I got there anyway. And you know, these big high ceiling buildings. And so artists move in, moved in and they started you know doing their art there they started showing their art there and what they did really was they made the neighborhood cool like people were like wow that's a cool ass neighborhood and then of course once something becomes cool same thing happened in tarpon fishing we those guys made it look really cool then the money comes in then you get the hedge fund guys you get the lawyers you get the corporate folks you know come in and they and real estate guys come in and they start and then all of a sudden the artists have to leave because everything's priced out and stuff like that same thing kind of happened in tarpon fishing i mean Gwaine and those guys made it look so damn cool. But all of a sudden you had these guys like Billy Pate and Tom Evans and Al Pfluger, uh, you know, and Ted Williams, all these people with, with means. um, And they turned it, you know, they, it was no longer really an art form. It became about the world record. It became about competition. It became, you know, uh, something sort of more commercial. Um, And so, you know, that was just fascinating to me to see sort of that, that, that thread, that, that kind of went through that how it the narrative kind of moved and how it shifted to get to homo to get to that point yeah
0: no that's super fascinating you you, you know what it it kind of reminds me of and maybe this is like a i don't know maybe this is a generalization but it almost seems like that was happening in like other outdoor sports during the same time you talk about like avon chenard and climbing like refining equipment and and then all of a sudden it becomes a business and then it becomes a a thing that's commercialized and then the anyway that that that's just off the top of my head when you were talking there i was like guys kind of it that you know i guess maybe that was the 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 golden age of a lot of sports that we participate in today, whether it's surfing, claw fishing, climbing,
1: whatever it may be. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting to me too. I mean, that's one of the reasons. So I continue after that period in the book, I continue after that period because it's really fascinating to me, not only to follow the guys who still go to home assassin, but also what's happened in the fishing world, what's happened in the, in the, in the tarpon fishing world, but also the kind of greater fishing world and, and the arrow we're in right now is really fascinating to me. I mean, I would, you know, especially with COVID now too. I mean, the, the sport is, booming in popularity uh there's a whole new generation coming in i'm kind of caught in between i'm in my 40s so i'm kind of in between the old i kind of understand the old dudes and i kind of understand i think i understand the, the young dudes too i don't post my and grins on instagram yet but there's time i guess <laughs> but i mean it, 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 it's just very interesting to see there's a there's a whole new generation coming up uh and the sport is cool now like it's like i don't know about you but like you know 10 years ago we were all wearing like boxy you know weird fishing shirts with big pockets in the front now, but he's wearing like, you know, basically like Under Armour stuff, you know, like yeah, really yeah. tight fitting. Like it's, but it also has this like, you know, it's got this kind of like craft beer, weed smoking, a little like skateboardy <laughs> culture Is <as> what <well. laughs> It, oh, it but, does. You know, we we think the, 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 so the boom that they always talk about in fly fishing was after the movie, right? After river runs through it, Robert Redford did that movie with, you right? know, with brad pitt starring in it of course and that was kind of like this big boom but there's been this huge aftershock it's almost like the children of the people who got into it then have now now the sport is on their shoulders to a certain degree and you know they've they've made it cool there are more women involved there are more people of color involved uh you know there are more type people are fishing for carp you know i mean like there's all sorts of different things going on and it's just uh i don't know it's fascinating to me to see this transformation and Part of that had to do with, as you you know, we go back talking about Shenard and climbing and stuff like that. Part of it had to do with these early icons and how how McGwain made it look cool. How uh, you know these guys, even in Homosassa and their competition, and all the sort of innovations that came from that. And on this, you know, there were reels made there that actually, you know, the the t reel kind of came from that, right? I mean, it, it, it was came. Billy Pate needed a better reel. Uh, Able reels came from that era. Uh, you know, these great graphite rods that are. You know that don't break uh you know every five fish came from that era as well so it's like all of that kind of made what's going on now possible which is just i just this continuum is just so interesting to me and, and of course it continues in, in five years from now ten years from now there'll probably be some other shift
0: Yeah, yeah, that's 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 fascinating to me as well um yeah. But so back to what you're saying, I mean, just about the, the whole evolution and, and, and where it's going to go um, and kind of a little bit of, of what we were talking about earlier is, is sort of the, you know, when you more angle, you know, do more anglers mean more conservationists, you know? Um, and, and I hope that's the case um, is this sort of this boom. Cause I'm, I'm hearing the same thing um, from everyone, you know I mean? It's like, fishing license sales are through the roof and, um, you can't, you know, um, few folks I know that own fly shops I and mean, they're like, we can't keep fly rods in stock. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and which is a, a good problem to have. The question is, where do you, you know, where do you go with it? I'm sure some of these people who are just getting into it now are going to wind up being the innovators of, uh, of something, but also, um, hopefully that they you know, uh, understand and respect the history, but also um, the more importantly, the the fish.
1: Yeah, I mean, the burden is on us to a certain degree. Now, I mean, uh, when I say us, I mean people who have been who have been doing this for a while. It, you know, it's about it's about uh, you know handing down you know ethics and morals and and best practices and all that sort of stuff, and also urging them to do better than we did. I mean, there's a really poignant moment in my book, I thought anyway, about flip palette. talking about how he says you know my generation didn't didn't do a good enough job teaching the next generation about how important you know these resources are and so you know when i heard flip say that i thought to myself well you know maybe it's up to my generation to do a better job with that and yeah and i I do think you know there is a conservation ethic um you know there is uh, that i think uh is pretty strong there is you know uh, do they do? Do people you know in Instagram too much and try to rip lips and all that sort of stuff? Probably, but you know, it, it, I, I do think there's a there's a there's a stronger conservation ethic uh, with this younger group than there's been in a long while, which is great.
0: Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I, I I I would agree. I think that they're they're they understand. I think, and and it probably has to do with. Um, them being educated more on things like climate change coming up that you know what what we're facing um at a global scale, um, you know, they're gonna be the ones that are gonna be have to deal with it. Um uh more so than than you know I'm I'm 38, so you know our, our generation, I guess. But um but yeah, so that's that, that's interesting. Well um well to to shift gears just uh just a little bit um are you, I, I kind of want to talk a little bit of, uh, about what you like to fish for and um, what, what, what you, maybe what got you, you said that you started bass fishing with poppers, but um, what, are, what are some of the fish that you like to like to target and, uh, and
1: yeah, we'll just go there. All right. So uh, why don't I start with the calendar year?
0: Yeah, uh, right. Basically,
1: I'm, I'm, an, um, I'm an omnivore though. I'm, I'm pretty happy. Uh, you know, my grandfather had a little pond in Alabama and I was very happy as a kid. And still now, uh, fishing poppers for bluegills—that's uh, a wonderful way to pass in a you know a soft spring evening in Alabama. But uh, you know, so the winter time, uh, if I'm lucky, I'll go down to the Bahamas. I love love bone fishing in Abaco. Yep.
0: Uh,
1: and then the spring, I do a tarpon trip uh, in the Everglades, which is my favorite place to fish for tarpon. They're, they're they're generally a nice size and they're laid up, which to me is the most fun way to fish for them. Yep. Uh, and then, you know, we have, uh, you know, we actually have great fishing here, uh, in Brooklyn. You, you people don't know about it very much and maybe that I should keep my mouth shut, but um, <laughs> it's incredible. So, you know, in the spring we get, we get, uh, our stripers start to come in and then I. The Catskills pretty close, but you know, only two hours away. So I was a total, when I first moved to New York, I was just a total Catskills hound. I spent, uh, I don't know, I probably spent 20 weekends a year up there. I was just so into it and still am, but with kids don't do it quite as much. But great wild trout fishing up there. Uh, and then the summer, you know, I, I kind of shift gears and um, uh, fish for stripers on the flats. There are lots of great uh, white sand flats around here um, and further out east in Long Island, which are. To me, that striper fishing on the flats is so fun. It's like bone fishing, but with warier, bigger fish. So fun. It's awesome. Uh, and then I go to, uh, I go to, I have a little cabin on the Marguerite River in Nova Scotia, a little family cabin, and go up there for two to three weeks a year and fish for salmon, Atlantic salmon, which I just adore uh and then the fall which we're kind of in right now you sort of uh the the stripers aren't quite here yet but the bonito and false albacore are here yep. uh which i get totally totally into as well um and then you know i, I have a it's just a little bit of a dormant period maybe like you could fish the stripers all the way through i fished on christmas eve last year uh and and caught a couple of fish i mean you could keep going as long as you can bear it um but usually, you know, January, I usually just kind of catch my breath. And then hopefully February, you get down to, the Abaco-, you get down to Abaco or something like that. But yeah, so it's, um, but I'm pretty much an omnivore. You know, I love, uh, if I had to rank them, I would say tarpon and probably Atlantic salmon are my favorite two fish.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, we... Yeah. So we, I, I, first off, I've, I've never been striper fishing. Um, that's on my to-do list, especially on Mm the, on, on the flats. Um, although you can do it in South Carolina, they, they, they run up to some lakes, I think. Um, I just have, for no real reason just have never done it. Um, that's on my to-do list, but, uh, me and some friends go down to the Everglades every year also. Um, and and camp out we didn't go this year this was the first uh year that we we didn't go but
1: um everglades i mean what a special place i mean i just my wife makes fun of me because my two favorite places in the world are the everglades and then our camp up in, in uh, nova scotia <laughs> and the one the one thing they have in common is huge mosquitoes yeah yeah <laughs> well, that, that and good fishing you're right uh, you're right but I, I tend to like places that have you know a lot of mosquitoes because it keeps a lot of people other people away
0: yeah may, well maybe hey maybe that's the ticket maybe we, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll start breeding mosquitoes and 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 florida a little bit more and see if we can slow the development down
1: but i love i mean everglades is so i remember uh i went the first time i went out there i left my Phone on, which the guy Steve Huff doesn't like phone anyway, but I left it on and I put it in the compartment or whatever. When I got back, I was like, oh, my battery's dead. He was like, yeah, I was roaming the whole time. It, it couldn't find, so it just drained the battery. I was like, wow, that's cool. You know, yes. I just, I love getting lost. I, I'm lost within, I don't know, where do you go out of? Do you go out of Everglade City or do you go, are you on the eastern part? We 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 go out of uh, what's it, flamingo? Oh yeah, okay. So you're you're so I'm I'm on the western part, Everglades City, Chalkalosky over there. Yeah, I don't know if it's the same with you, but literally, like we leave the dock, and as soon as I look back, and as soon as I can't see the dock, I'm like, I have no idea where I am.
0: No oh so, well, the the best part is so we we um, the way that this trip goes is a buddy of mine that I grew up with, um, Brent Watts, and he lives in Savannah, and so I drive down from Charleston the night before stay with Brent we sort of pack we drive down there sometimes we split it up but um and and go overnight um but anyway drive down to flamingo and the and the best part of it is when you get near the Everglades National Park sign yep. you, you lose cell phone signal down there yep. And we both look at each other. and We're like, "Yeah, all right, now we're here. Now it's official. Like, cannot be bothered. It's fantastic feeling." And then down there, what's cool is you got a boat ramp that can take you out to the bay, and you got another boat ramp that can take you to the back country. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's we camp right there, and and fl- we've done the chicky camping. Yeah. Uh, yep. That that that's awesome. That that does get a little buggy depending on. Yep. The, the time of year, but, um, cause you can have a, a, uh, a campfire at the at the other site. But, um, but anyway, that, all that is to say, uh, yes, when you get to the point where basically I enjoy being places where I'm out of cell phone service, mm-hmm. <laughs> range, right. You, 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 you found the right spot.
1: Yep. I agree. I feel like that's going to, maybe people will pay to go to those. Oh, I guess we do already, right? Like you sort of do it on purpose, right? It's like a vacation from your phone
0: yeah totally um that's so funny well um well monty do you have anything else that you want to
1: to try and cover on this or is there um no i mean i i I, you know i want to make sure that people don't think that the the book is all doom and gloom i mean there's a you know lords of the fly has there's a lot i mean it it was it's such an interesting story to me because of the names and 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 uh that you know, the people that I've been reading about forever. I mean, probably some of your listeners as well, Lefty Craig, Stu Apt and Chico and Flip and you know, Billy Pate. And it was just so fun to sort of, you know, it was an absolute joy to do. And it, it you know, I, I'm realistic about the, the obviously the troubles stuff like that too. But there's a lot of fun and there's a lot of mischief in the book as well. So I just don't I don't want people to think it's all this doom and gloom book. Like it's uh, you know, there's a there's a hell of a lot of fun in it. There's even a gangster in there, I think there's a whole chapter on a Gangster who got into tarpon fishing.
0: So
1: you know it's 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 not lighthearted, but it's there's mischief and there's fun.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, what I've read so far is, I mean, I I just have been fascinated, and um, because if you if you even if you haven't gone tarpon fishing, I mean, it's so descriptive, and it kind of takes you there in your reading. um, But I I'm also mildly mildly obsessed with with Jim Harrison. So I'm excited to read that yep. chapter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, fun, uh, fun Those guys had a great time down there. I mean they had you know they had a a great time. And what a great excuse. I mean McGwain's one of my heroes and what a great excuse this book was to interview people like him. I mean I, I called him and I said, hey I want to talk to you about your the time, your time in Key West. And he said, Sure, why don't you come out to Montana? So I so, said, Okay, sure, no problem. I'll be right there. Yeah, if you ins- if you insist. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> but you just like, you know, the, I call those guys, they were the married pranksters of the, the tarpon world. I mean, they were, you know, smoking weed and, you know, practicing their art forms, really. I mean, they were, you can you can see it in Harrison's writing. You can see the, the sort of influence of that era. You can see it in McGuane's writing for sure. You can see it, you could see it in Russell Chatham's. Beautiful landscape paintings. You could see sort of the influence there. Uh, you know, so that that's a that was a fun chapter.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that. And um I will have to and and if I have to edit this out, I, I will, but I have to tell the story. Um because I'm I was I think it was just even in the introduction, but um about Steve Huff. Uh, catching the wrecker tarpon, while was it was it Tom Evans while well, he yeah. was ba- basically <laughs> t- taking a dump. Yeah, and keep in mind, I had not read this and I had never heard that story before. And a couple of weeks ago, um, I was in a redfish tournament in Savannah, this Savannah Fly Invitational. And now we're not going for world records, but it is your two biggest redfish. It's a two-day tournament. So the mo- two biggest fish per boat, most inches, and that's who wins first, second, third. Right. And so my buddy and I are fishing in that, and uh, we, were, we thought we were in the running, and which was surprising. I mean, you know, we, we didn't expect it to be But we caught, we caught a nice 31-inch redfish and then a 25-and-a-half-inch redfish. So that put us at 56-and-a-half inches. And we knew that another boat had caught 230. So we knew we weren't going to win first, but we felt pretty good about a top three finish. Well, my our, some friends of ours, William and Steven, I'll I'll keep their last names out of this in case they don't want, want this known. But they're they're fishing the second day. And the second day was the conditions were terrible. It was like blowing 20 miles an hour. It was just not good for trying to catch a tail and redfish. And my buddy Steven, um he sharts, and he goes, he goes. But well, we gotta go back. Like I gotta, I gotta take care of this. Like this is not good. Well, my buddy Williams, like here, there's a roll of toilet paper in there. Just t- you know, take care of yourself. We're not, we're not going back. Well, as he's saying this, and the and the day before, they had caught a 26 and I think a 25 inch fish. So we're beating them as he's saying this and Steven has his pants around the ankles. He goes, I swear to God, there's like 10 bull reds on that point busting bait mm-hmm. and they cast to it and catch a 31 inch and beat us by half of an inch. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> when I was reading that, I was like, it's not, we weren't going for a world record and you know, one of us were guides, but that's pretty hilarious. Maybe there's maybe
1: there's a book about a collection of, of people pooping on boats and, and fish caught while that happens. I had a guy uh, uh, email me. There's a there's a, a later on chapter about a guide who uh, ties uh, tarpon flies out of his girlfriend's pubic hair, and he said, <laughs> shut up. He he uh, the guy some uh, a guy texted me and said, you know that that was uh, that might have been a little over the top, you know, like I, I glad I you know. It, you know, it had my dinner a couple hours earlier or whatever. And I was like, dude, I let off the book with a guy taking a dump off the back of the boat. I mean, you know, come on, you were prepared for this. (laughs) That's awesome. Um,
0: Well, no, well, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I I, I would, from what I've read so far of Lords of the Fly, it's been amazing. I cannot wait to, uh, to finish it. I'm probably going to, put some, some time into that this, this weekend and hopefully wrap that out. Cause now I can't wait to, to, to finish the rest, but, um, but yeah, I, I, anyone out there where, uh, where can they
1: purchase uh, Lords of the fly money? So, you know, it's been kind of an odd journey. There's some, the good news is for me anyway is that it sold out uh, in the first three days. That was oh, no way. Bad, bad news is that they've had a hard time getting it back into because of covid restrictions like that getting the reprint they have a reprint they just had a hard time getting it back on so uh you know one way is to go to uh you can go to simon and and actually buy it straight from them which is probably the that's the quickest way to get it these days amazon is restocked but they're they're not fully restocked yet so they're uh you know you have to wait till october or something like that but there are ways if you're or, you know if you hunt around you can you can certainly find it um but it's been there's been a little bit of a two week period here where, we, where we've uh, had a hard time getting books to market. But that, is, we'll be able
0: to... that is a good problem to have. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I mean, it's
1: very good, right? But I'm also extremely I, I, every day. I look at the Amazon thing, and they said, "Oh, it's like in stock in one month." I'm like, "Are you kidding me?"
0: Well, yeah. I think I think it actually might time out very well as people start to. It, weather cools down if it's available when it's cold outside and, and yeah. people are looking to, to get the tarpon fever. Hopefully, uh, there'll that, be a good, good, good holiday gift and, yeah. uh, and, and that. But, um, and if anybody, and I, I just know this just from from reading some of your work, but if anyone wants to read um, any of your additional, stories or, or, or learn more about your books they can just go to uh monty right
1: that's right Yep. yeah uh, with an e it's monty with an e not a y
0: yeah is that up uh to, yeah m-o-n-t-e-b-u-r-k-e.com okay. Okay. um cool well well monty thanks uh so much for for your time Thanks for listening to the Sustainable Angler and special thanks to Monty Burke for carving some time out for me today. Um, If you'd like to listen to more episodes and stay up to date with the latest, you can find the Sustainable Angler podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts and also uh, appreciate the support from Fish Gods. Uh, Check them out and support their Kickstarter campaign. Uh, Thanks for tuning in.